Hi, unicorns. I'm big mountain skier and adventurer, Lindsay Dyer, and this is the Showing Up Podcast, conversations with real-life people who make a life in the outdoors to inspire you to embrace your weird, do the thing even if you suck at it, and fully show up for this one wild and precious life. Real quick, unicorns, if you've got foot pain, sore arches, or foot cramps, I've got a solution for you. Luckily, this episode of Showing Up is brought to you by Weave. Weave is a technology company that makes your feet more resilient. Made from photos of your feet taken on your phone, Weave custom fits insoles and sandals to help you keep going in comfort in the mountains, at the beach, or anywhere life takes you. Here's how it works. You take a couple of photos of your feet with the Weave app, and Weave turns those photos into 3D models. Your models are then used to custom make insoles and sandals just for you in San Diego, California. Weave combines 3D printing with traditional techniques to make products unique to every customer. You can even choose your own artwork. You skiers already know this, but custom fit makes a huge difference, and the millimeters, they really matter. When footwear is made to the precise contours of your feet, with just the right support in just the right places, you will feel, move, and live better. Fans of the Showing Up podcast can get 20% off all orders by using the code SHOWINGUP. That's showing up at WIIVV.com. WIIVV.com or with the Weaves mobile app by searching for WIIVV. One last thing, Weaves ship for free and come with a 30-day happiness guarantee. Thousands of happy customers have bought Weaves and their feet feel amazing. Try them today using the code showing up at Weave.com. Here we go. Calling Aaron Huey, my next interview, a photographer is both accurate and a severe understatement. Yes, he's a photographer for National Gra- Ge- Geographic. <laughs> I've heard of them. And a contributing editor for Harper's Magazine. <laughs> I've also heard of them. But he's also so much more. Not many photographers can say they've walked 3,349 miles across America. Or that afterwards, they took a couple years off from shooting photos to start an art commune in the desert. <laughs> yeah, he's that interesting. Aaron Huey definitely can say he has. Throughout his career, he's proven that he's not just interested in good photos, but in meaningful stories as well. Through his work with the Amplifier Foundation, he helped create an iconic piece of protest art around Donald Trump's inauguration. He's also brought renewed and compassionate coverage to underserved communities like those on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. He even helped with the women's movement, creating the art for the Women's March. I caught up with him at Mountain Film and Telluride, Colorado, and we talked about how he got started, what led him to walk across America with his dog, and the motivations behind his work and activism. We also talk about his eight-year-old's Instagram account, which reaches a little over 200,000 people. Here we go. All right, Aaron Huey, how's it going, friend? Thanks for making time. You're welcome. We're in Telluride, Mountain Film. That's usually where I get to see you, and you're usually running around like crazy, and I'm so lucky that you have found an hour (laughs) to hang out with me. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to spew all about you in the open (laughs) before you can, so where you can't hear me, but uh, I'm loving your posters right now. Um, Talk about some of your favorite projects that are going on. Favorite projects? I mean, I'm kind of in the middle of three mega projects that all overlap and take up most of my time I while having a family while having two (laughs) small children and a wife um I just wrapped a National Geographic story about the National Monument reductions that's been in the works for a little bit over a year Mm -hmm. so that was made up of maybe 50 60 days of of shooting in uh Bears Ears National Monument and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument uh, I ran into Sadie. She said that that was difficult. It was di- it was a difficult assignment. Yeah, because I'm a people photographer, and it was not a story that had a lot of people in those monuments. You know, this is not like a traveler hiking magazine story where you want a bunch of pictures of people with backpacks on ridge lines. Mm-hmm. This is like trying to get the real the real story here, which is about uh, resource extraction and and about ancestral Pueblo and communities and. A lot of the things that you want to photograph are not really happening. They're theoretical or they're far in the past or far in the future. So yeah, was, w- where did you first get interested in all of that from from the classic, you know, mountain photographer, expedition photographer to to telling these deeper stories that are 
that are gnarly, <laughs> gnarly yeah, to yeah. tell. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess, wait, so how did I go from like outdoor stuff to... You know, I, I guess maybe we should just start at the beginning. Like, like who were your heroes growing up that led you to the photography and then eventually into activism? Yeah, I mean, I think my photographic heroes were probably a lot of the people that are, you know, in the Magnum organization, you know, photographers like David Allen Harvey and some of the early old school National Geographic photographers, um, like, like William Albert Allard. Um, sure. But a lot of the conflict photographers too, that were shooting war across the world and, uh, in the Middle East, uh, Jim Noctwe and, and a lot of the guys working on, you know, at the time. So, I know I I started by telling human stories. I wasn't like an I wasn't doing like adventure stories so much. I was going deep into communities and uh living with families and returning again and again over years and years uh kind of finding that story or finding my place within the family so that those photographs became really personal and revealed something about about that that culture or that community. Do you feel like that was brought on by some of your family life? Like, why did you choose that subject matter? I, I don't, I don't think it was brought on my own, my own family life. I mean, I was just a, a traveler and I was traveling for adventure. And then I, I got sucked into, uh, I got sucked into real life. I got, su- you know, some of my first travels with a camera, uh, with one of my first cameras, I arrived in Istanbul two days before an earthquake that killed like 40,000 people. And I photographed the aftermath of that earthquake. And so it kind of found you. And I went directly from that earthquake into Iran for the 20th anniversary of the hostage crisis, just by chance. Cause I got a lucky visa and lived with Iranian families and saw deep beyond the propaganda of the, of, of us media at the time that demonized Iran. And I think as I went into these families, into their lives, it was much, much more interesting than, you know, adventure photography. And I had done some, I had been photographing climbing. I've rock, I've been a rock climber for the last 22, 23 years and established a lot of rock climbs and photograph a lot of rock climbing. But I got pulled very deep into families and, and realized that I wanted to photograph those communities, not like postcards, not like travel magazine stuff. I wanted to go much, much deeper. But that's so much easier, right? Like to do what the <laughs> the postcards? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's way easier to do the postcards. Yeah, I mean that's what's like flooding Instagram these days. Right. Is, that's what is makes really you really pretty backpacker pictures and. So how yeah. do you how do you how have you stayed motivated and then and then fundraise for these really heavy mm-hmm. subjects uh, to tell these broader, more meaningful stories with that don't necessarily have pay yeah they don't pay super well that's what i'm that's there's a reason why (laughs) i i so wanted to sit down with you versus well i think a lot of those early stories they weren't like they weren't driven by a plan they were kind of heart driven they were i would stumble into something and fall in love or find something i thought people i couldn't believe we didn't know about and i almost felt like i didn't have a choice but to keep telling that story and so i I didn't really th- ever think about it as something I was trying to do to make money initially. Um, and when I, you know, I didn't have a full family and I could couch surf and live really cheap, then I, I could just save up money like painting some houses and then go travel for a couple of months with some, you know, a couple thousand dollars. It's different now with, with small kids and a wife, but at the time I could, yeah, could just you, dirt bag it. Could you talk about some of one of your favorite early stories where you found that meaning and purpose and in telling that story? Yeah, I mean, like, my my very first real story, I still love the images from it. The first real photo essay I ever made was uh, I I stumbled into a, a lot, like, a valley in the Georgian Caucasus on the Georgia-Russia border that at a time when there were no guidebooks, there were no restaurants, there were no hotels, there were no paved roads, and there were no other tourists. And uh, I remember being on the bus on my way in, and, and about an hour into the bus ride, somebody turned around and asked me where I was going, and I said I was going to camp when the bus hit the end of the road. And she just shook her head and said, "You, you, oh, please don't do that, and just come come with us. We're, gonna, we're going to a wedding. Uh, she was really worried about my safety and I, I went to this wedding and became like the special guest and <laughs> the family adopted me like almost immediately and I just lived with them 
and I began documenting this family's life, a very, very personal view of this family's life, like so really like intimate moment. It's always been in the flow. It kind yeah, of found you. Yeah, it just you. found me. And then I realized at the end of that trip, oh gosh, I didn't have enough time here. I, I love this family and I want to learn more. They were teaching me their songs and I, I, like, I felt like I was part of them and, and I was making pictures that weren't like anything else that I'd ever made. And How old were you at the time? Uh, I was still in college, so probably 21 or... Where'd you go to school? I went to school at the University of Denver. And what were you studying? Um, I was studying painting and printmaking and sculpture. So you were uh, always an artist. Yeah, it was, yeah, photography was just became the most portable medium, I think, mm-hmm. for me. But after at, at the end of that trip, I, I realized I wanted to come back. And I came back for, you know, the first trip was 10 days and the next trip was three weeks. And then the third trip was you know five weeks and at the end of that I had something unlike anything I'd ever made it was a a body of work that was that was poetic and that went really deep into the lives of of a community and a family into really personal moments and I think that set the path and so that did you have an outlet for that at the time um or did you just do it I, I mean I found some kind of small crafty publications that ran it black and old like small black and white fine art publications and uh so I found outlets for it. Um, my first really big published work was I I walked across America in right. two thousand like January of two thousand two. I started and that that was one of that was really my first big published piece. It was published as a feature in the Smithsonian. That's probably I, your most well known piece. Would you say? I mean, no, early, not early now. On. But it's it was like it was the that jump kind of, start. Yeah, that kind yeah. of put you on this trajectory. Yeah, it. I think it set me apart from people that were coming into editors' offices with with regular bodies of work and so it was so how it was did an you extraordinary story I suppose and it made people remember that yeah body of work yeah like where did you conceive of it uh the walk across America mm-hmm. I think originally I, I wanted to run across America I was a big runner and then my coach told me that it would it would destroy my knees and I really shouldn't try it and forgot about it for a year and then I it just kind of kept coming back up in my mind uh and uh, eventually I just decided that I could do that and have a grand adventure I could just get in a regular track of like working in a newspaper and trying to you know work my way up a photographic food chain uh like a lot of people do and I just wanted to go have great adventures and make a bi- another big body of work yeah so how long was that and tell uh, that, us that story that trip was 3,349 miles and it took 154 days which is very fast <laughs> I think the you know the kind of low days were in the high teens and low twenties, but the high days were in the low forties. So I I kind of averaged pretty close to thirty miles a day. Wow! Not including rest days. I mean, there were you know a handful of rest days here and there where I didn't walk at all. But and was that kind of in the flow also? Were you as far as your path or, or like? Where uh, was the... I don't know if that was necessarily in the flow. That took a little bit of preparation and thing. And uh, you know, I didn't train for anything. I just got dropped off at the Pacific Ocean. Um, cause I, I think I didn't want to know how bad it was going to hurt or there's no real way to prepare for walking every day for five months or six months or, and did anyone join you along the way or, uh, no, not really. I mean, I had a couple of people as they met me, they'd walk a couple miles or, you know, one so Forrest Gump of you, <laughs> except for it was real. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I don't know. I was, I, it was a time where I had already traveled the world a decent amount and I kind of felt like I didn't know America and I say that because, you know, I was I was a climber and I traveled a lot and I would always go to very, very specific destinations. I'd go climbing and I'd know exactly what my de- destination was, who I'd be meeting, you know, except for some other people in the campground. There would be people kind of like me. But I think it's ve- it was ve- it's very rare, especially now in the, this hyper-polarized political climate, for us to hang out with people really different than us right. and to not have control over our schedules, really. I... I wanted, you know, so as I traveled, as I walked, I kind of tried to say yes to everything that felt safe. I, every person that wanted to talk to me, I, I hung out and often went to their homes. They would often invite me home or invite me to their cousin's place, you know, How 30 miles up the road. How would you meet them as you're walking? People would stop, see me and stop on the side of the road or they would see me in a restaurant. And it was because I, I didn't look like a hitchhiker. I, I looked really clean had like a cowboy hat on and like probably like a clean North Face coat or something and this beautiful, beautiful, giant husky Malamute wolf mix. And she was pulling a dog cart on wheels that had cut out flames on the sides that looked like a comet. And so it was really clear we were not hitchhiking the next town. It was really clear we were not trying to get a ride. And so I think people couldn't figure out how to fit it in their mind. They wanted to know, well, 
what what are they doing they couldn't figure so they had to stop like people <laughs> broke all the normal rules of social contact they would stop in an suv full of kids and like talk to the stranger on the side of the road like people just didn't do that but they was that did. part of your strategy or was that no just it was it not intentionally but sure. it i think it just I, I became aware of that, but it was not planned. But we, we were an anomaly. And people, you know, in that case, they must have seen something that felt safe to approach the anomaly. And so they would stop and ask me what I was doing. And when I would tell them, people would often ask if they could buy me a meal or leave me money. Or they'd say, I wish I could quit my job and go with you, you know. So, But because I can't, here's 20 bucks. Or because I can't, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to pay for your meal up the road. And when you get to the restaurant, it's the only one in 30 miles. Stop there and, and thought your food's already paid for. That's so I only awesome. spent $250 in five months. Wow. Um, and, but I never asked for money. I never, ever asked for money. But no one would let me spend money once they knew what I was doing. And then would those be your subjects as you're walking? Yeah, often. I mean, at the time, I wasn't like, the, the thing was not totally driven by photography. I only shot maybe a roll a day. I was shooting with a manual camera mm -hmm. and I'd shot like 36 frames a day probably on average. So was it um, more a writing assignment in your, in your head? I, I think it was more just a, like a meditation, yeah. like a long, long walking meditation. But I did write some and like those old, old, old journals are online on my website from, you know, 16 years ago now. Um, so I did write, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a support crew. So I did not, I had a cell phone, but I left it. I intentionally did not bring a communication device. Um, I did intentionally didn't have a support crew. I would call my dad uh, and my family from pay phones um, so and I would stop at libraries in your head. The purpose. I mean, I just wanted to go into the unknown like America, my own backyard was a great unknown. If I if I stopped and talked to the people that that I would have normally not talked to, that was like the gr a greater unknown than traveling to some exotic place in Asia. Um, and also just like. I wanted something that was impossible that I couldn't see the end of that, uh, you know, that was the unknown in me. And so because the magic in the walk was once I broke through a certain pain threshold at about a, a thousand miles and I took a break, the whole middle of that walk was it was a journey that didn't have a, a future. It was a perfect, almost a perfectly present journey because the trip was so big, I couldn't see the end of it or I would have made myself crazy. So from like mile 1000 to like mile 2500, the entire middle, I couldn't see the end and I didn't try to see the end. And so it was a really, a very present, practice. it was a very present practice. And like my body had gotten tuned in and it, you know, it must have, I've never had anything before or since then that felt like this, but it must be like what like, a, like an elite athlete's body felt like. I felt like a machine. I felt like a monster. Like I felt like so strong. I'd walked all night. We'd walk all night often. Because that and was, I just, was too hot we just during the day. charged. We were just, just, it felt unstoppable. Like there was no past and no future and no pain and like nothing. What just, a beautiful relationship with your dog yeah, too. And, and it was such a simple time because all I, you know, the only, the only things I had to do was eat, sleep, um, and talk to people and, and walk. That was it. Like that, <laughs> it was really that simple. And, you know, now if I were to do something like that, I think it would be, it would be all filled up with a whole bunch of product and people like expecting me to turn in my thing for National Geographic and update Instagram every day. And mm -hmm. thank God I didn't have all those tools because it would have, it would have, you know, I did write journals, but it didn't feel like I, I had the pressure of making a product out of everything. Um, and now I think it really would. And so what was the greatest value you got out of it then? Oh, I mean, I, I got a glimpse at what it is to not be trapped by the fear of, of past or future. Like it was, it was, it was a glimpse into the present. Like it was, and that's, I don't think I've never really replicated it since then because I, it's it. I don't really have the time to do a thousand mile initiation again anytime soon, but mm -hmm. and that's what it took. It took a thousand miles of walking to start to let go of the world. Um, how was, how was coming back into the real world? Coming then? back was super hard. Um, I remember when I could see the end, I was in Bloomington, Indiana, and I'd taken a couple of days off to let my dog Cosmos pause, you know, rest. And I had met this woman that I was hanging out with and, I'd stayed in this apartment with these two single moms and their kids and was having a great time. And while I was there, I got out a map. And at this point, I really knew what my body could do. And I'd, I kind of understood the roads and what was the logical path. And I sat down and I kind of charted out the whole course. 
And the second I saw the whole course and like the date range of when I'd be done, it was like the entire trip was over and it, and it kind of destroyed it. It, it really was like, that was the real end of the walk because then there wasn't, then there was a, the, the future was then known. It was, it was, Oh fuck. I, I have to walk 40 more days or, but I already did it. Like, do I really have to? Like, I was <laughs> like, I already know I can do this. It's not, now it's just, what am I going to be doing this for? I'm, going to be doing it because people are watching me and waiting for me and my, you know, to see if I can do it. And I had to kind of redesign it because then it, it wasn't as much about like this perfect, like mythical like presence presence. And not to, I don't mean mythical. I just mean, I did have to come to the realization that I was coming back to a world where I would have to work and, and, and do things and come into contact with people I knew. And, uh, and I, it, it was hard. I, I wanted to stay in a kind of magic in between, I wanted to stay in that in-between and not have a past or a future. But uh, so that presented a new challenge. And then the physical pain came back Interesting. around the same time. Why? And it was um, some of the hardest walking, too. There's no shoulders on the side of the road in the east. And so it was very, very dangerous walking, almost getting hit by cars all the time. It was getting really, really hot. So I think I probably, if I had to really analyze, I think I kind of redesigned the trip to be to understanding this kind of science almost of how I interacted with people because I, I just had to kind of watch myself and understand the communities that I came into contact with. And I made it a lot more about how I communicated with those people and what I learned. And it, it felt a little bit less like the journey of my own kind of self-discovery and more of like maybe how I learned to be a people photographer came from the end you know, of the latter part of that Giving journey. Giving yourself a new project. Yeah, like I had to learn how to, you know, well, what what was driving me each day. And, and it kind of became, I think, about understanding, you know, my interactions with individuals and communities and communication. And I think it taught me a lot about making pictures of people. So would you recommend that? Would you say, like, if you got a chance, take <laughs> take half a year to? <laughs> I think to it would take. Usually, it would take more than half a year. That was uh, it was abnormally fast and very painful to go <laughs> thirty mile days that long. I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that if you can avoid that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think anybody that could do something like that, that would, they should. It was, you know, I think I wonder how different that experience would be for a woman or a person of color in this time. Um, you know, I had the, you know, I. I had a kind of container, you know, as a white male that I, I think made it probably feel safer in the middle of rural America. I, I, I did occasionally imagine how would this be for someone that did not look like me? Like, would they have radically different experiences? And it sounds like that's also fueled a lot of what <laughs> you moved into afterwards. Uh, which part? Uh, well, all of it. Uh, so much of your the work walk, now. How the walk has fueled the things that came well, after? Well, I'm not sure if it did, but I know how aware you are. Of yeah. of well, your position as white male right now, and and using that to help tell the stories of people who are not in in that place. Um, yeah, I mean, I try to be aware of that. It's a it's a tough time to be a white male. Uh, no, I don't want to say it's a tough time to be a white male because <laughs> there's no nobody should feel sorry for Aaron Huey. I'm doing just fine, but uh, there are just new there are just new responsibilities. I think we have to be aware of, and I mean, it's why often when people talk about like some project I'm doing or a story like giving voice to the people. I'm like, Oh, whoa, hold on, hold on. People already have a voice. Hmm. They have a real strong voice. Just, I have the privilege of having platforms that can amplify it by, you know, occasionally hundreds or thousands fold, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a Ted stage or a Nat Geo cover story or a project with Shepard Ferry. Yeah. I have the privilege or understanding of how to access those routers and and megaphones and so it's my responsibility to to turn those you know those megaphones on and make those voices like, so those voices can be heard in in larger numbers yeah so so what was the next big the next big thing was i stopped shooting photos for like three years and made an art commune whoa i didn't know that <laughs> that's not in the bio i finished <laughs> i finished my walk across america like and i had I had already gotten this. It was back when they'd let anybody buy a house um, with no credit. I mean, I was just a dirtbag with like no money in the bank, painting houses and pulling weeds to make money to go do trips. And somehow they had this thing called an owner finance deal where like you could buy a house from, you know, and the people selling it to you would finance it for a couple of years and you just have to figure out how to take over the mortgage within a few years. Um, and so 
I found this property in New Mexico. I stumbled upon it through some people I knew on a road trip. And they said, hey, you should think about buying something here. And I was like, oh, I'll take a look. Just <laughs> and by the next day, I was like trying to figure out how to buy this piece of property um, to try and build a crazy like was artist that? residence dream. And it was because it was like, it was going to be like $600 a month, you know, for a mortgage. And I thought, I surely I can come up with $600 a month. So I started inviting all the artists I knew from college that I really respected to come out and help me build this like compound, you know, add on to the buildings that were there, build a gallery and just have art parties and make art. And isn't that the dream? It, it was, it really was a dream. And, and they all came, everybody I came, <laughs> I asked came and um, before I really started building on it, I kind of put everything on pause, walked across America, and when I got back, I immediately charged into like building this uh, an art gallery, and then all these people came, and we for a couple of years just did these four to six month cycles of making making art and having huge art parties out in the New Mexico desert on the off the Pecos River. Amazing. Um, but while I was there, I was kind of sorting. I was sorting like the bodies of work I had made to that point, which was really just that body of work in the Georgian Republic in Svanetia with that family and my walk across America. And I began to take those two bodies of work to try and figure out, I, I, I thought, I, want, I do want to try and make a living trying this or to see what I can do with this. And I started trying to shop those things and see if how I could do that. Um, but I realized at a certain point after a few years in New Mexico that... Um, I couldn't try to start a photographic business or be a photojournalist and travel around the world living way, way, way out in the desert in New Mexico, hmm. you know, two or three airports away from anywhere I needed to go. Um, and so ultimately, in the end, that that place, that chapter in my life had to end, but it was... So did you sell it or is it, is it still there? I, I did sell it. Uh, yeah, I just kind of broke even. I, I, I racked up $60,000 in credit card debt and <laughs> paid it off by refinancing the property. And I basically just walked away at zero paid all my credit card minimums by pulling weeds and painting houses and the artists that lived with me paid minimal rents and we just kind of played this kind of game with credit and debt and building and art and it all kind of worked out and we all walked away kind of with nothing but like <laughs> but with years and years of 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 amazing art building and commitment to and, and parties and, art. and yeah really celebrating making and how did your community so you said your art developed more in curating what you had done versus well, like that making was, new art during that couple of years in in new mexico during the art commune days as i labeled them you know it wasn't really a commune but i just i think i i move between mediums a lot i i'm not like just in the category of photojournalism i for that two years i didn't really shoot photos i but i painted and i i built buildings and i designed mm. structures and for me that that was the equivalent to that any was, other thing I made, fix. you know, so yeah. before the photojournalism, there was stone sculpture and metal sculpture and painting and printmaking. And then for a period there was photojournalism. And then for a period there was, you know, back so to building. And then has you know, it always had a message? Like, has it always been for a greater cause or a greater cause is maybe a dangerous thing to say. I mean, not all art has to have a, a greater cause because defining greater cause, you know, how do you do that? Is it like, what what is the greater cause sometimes just learning about ourselves or you know or sure you know the things that are born out of us like as a painter I wasn't trying to do something for the greater cause I something was birthed out of me as I as I marked the canvas and and that was enough it was a, a yeah a purity of self-expression and sure it wasn't about trying to stop the war in Syria or or save the children it was just self-expression we're gonna have a baby crying in the alley for a while here yeah, sorry. No, sorry. It is what it is. Uh, so what's the next pivotal moment or thing after the art commune? After art commune days, I, I think that's when I realized I wanted to try and start doing photojournalism for work. And so I kind of went into trying to get into the grind of that, like any assignments, small assignments, just trying to find the way in. Um, and I found a, I found a, an agent that could help me get work. And I started making trips to New York and started getting, you know, one day portrait shoots or two day assignments for Time magazine or one day assignments for the New York Times in some regional capacity or something and and it was I just started cobbling it together and then I got my first like And was that because you of the credibility of the Smithsonian project? Yeah, I think it's cuz I had those two big bodies of work and then it was important for me to show what I could do in smaller chunks of time because in the magazine world you don't get uh, uh, you know, five months or three trips over three years to make a piece, really. And mm -hmm. uh, so magazines need to see smaller bodies of work. Uh, so how old were you at that time? I was 
maybe 24 or 25. 25 maybe when I moved to Seattle. Yeah, 25, 26, somewhere around there. Um, and so while I was trying to find enough work to start making a living, uh, I actually made all of my money by being a route, a full-time route setter at a rock climbing gym. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I, around that time I got my first job for one of the Nat Geo brands for their Traveler magazine. Uh, and then another one came and then I, you know, I, I, I started getting enough work. I couldn't stick on a schedule of any other job. And so I s- had to go for it. And, uh, Around Hurricane Katrina, I got sent to Hurricane Katrina and ended up getting a lot of work for different newspapers. And that kind of just started a time period where there was enough assignments that I didn't have to worry about, uh, like, trying to get some whole other full-time job anymore. Um, And right around that time is when I started doing the work on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Okay. Um, I had been asked by my agency to go try and invent a story of my own that was, you know, not waiting for a magazine. And they would, you know, pay for half of the expenses or something like that. Sometimes an agency will do that. And I wanted to, what I, the initial idea was to do a a survey on, a visual survey on poverty in America to look at literally the list of statistics and go to those places to make a a portrait of how and why we had arrived at those statistics. Um, And and that, you know, that involved everything from like meatpacking plants and, in the plains to uh, the you know ganglands of Chicago, and one of the statistics was the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. It was the poorest place in America, and it had been for a very long time. Um, so I went there initially just as a statistic, um, but when I got there, people revealed a story to me that I couldn't believe that I wasn't learning in school. You know, it was ultimately a story about the American genocide. It was about a very, very, very calculated series of events that led in the total oppression and 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 murder of of the majority of those peoples and of their way of life, of the language, of the culture, of the spirituality, or the attempt to snuff that out. Um, Yeah, the first time I ever came to Mountain Film, that was prominent. And I felt the same way, like, how could we not know? And we all learned about it because of you. So I I got pulled into that story just because, not because I planned it really, I just, like, it, it sucked me in and families invited me in and it made the rest of, like, the trip looking at superficial poverty statistics look pretty silly. And so I I just kept finding ways to go back to Pine Ridge to these families that had kind of adopted me. Um, and it was dark, dark, dark work. Um, but it was one of those things that I just felt like people people had to know. I couldn't, I mean, I grew up in Wyoming, very close to the Black Hills, and I couldn't believe nobody had ever taught me about that history. I mean, I was a very educated person. How could I not know that? Like right. So talk about some of the things that we never got in our history books. Yeah. Well, that you found. I mean, you know, that in the, be- uh, you know, this ended up that series of events, you know, ended up being a Ted talk for me. And it goes from, you know, the, the creation of the department of Indian affairs inside of the war department that, that, that sets the tone for everything that they were, wow. they were figuring out how to deal with the quote, the Indians through the war department and it, wow. you know there was just a whole series of calculations to make sure that they tricked people into giving up land through like small land ownership so that they could further subdivide it and and get them to sell it and start making them lose it permanently and it, you know that just a massive series of treaties broken made and then broken you know and then kind of one of the big culminations being uh, the wounded knee massacre um, in 1890, which was really the event in which the kind of ended the Indian Wars, where they said, you know, if you want to be Indians, this is what we're going to do to you. And they killed them all with a Gatling gun, you know, 300 and some odd uh, uh, men, women, and children, you know, lots of women and children. They killed them with the predecessor to the Gatling gun. And to, you know, all across America, to the indigenous people, that was kind of a statement that, like, this is what we'll do to you if you don't step in line. You know, and then beyond that, then it just got sicker and sicker than it was, you know, than it was the the whole time period of kill the Indian, save the man, you know, cut the hair, kill the language, beat mm-hmm. beat them if they speak the language, put them in boarding schools, s- you know, crush the language and you crush the spirituality, you crush, uh, you know, you crush the Sundance and the, the Anipi and, and the Uipi, you know, and, and as soon as you take away that language, you, it's, it starts to kill the people mm-hmm. and... Um, it was a very, very calculated effort. It wasn't just like a byproduct of like us trying to get a few things here and there and move a railroad or build a town. It was a really calculated effort to really destroy an entire people. Um, and then, you know, the the talk that I did ultimately in this timeline for Ted, it, it kind of ends in this 
one of the big events was in 1980, the Supreme Court ruled finally in favor of the Sioux, saying that, yes, the U.S. government had broken the Fort Laramie Treaty, and they had stolen the land, essentially, but it was too late. Tough shit. And so that was the longest-running court case in, in, in U.S. history. Um, but, you know, the things that I was seeing were the result of that genocide. If I'm documenting, like, like all of this death and darkness and, and, and poverty and statistics, that those all came from that calculated genocide. Um, and that body of work really is what, you know, began to really crack open a different way of storytelling and new outlets for me. That National Geographic saw that story and asked if they could help me finish it and paid for me to make go back and find the light in that story because I had up to that point been just telling a story of purely of genocide but within those communities there was resilience and there were you know so many communities of sun dancers and people continuing the ceremony and and uh, teaching the language and so through National Geographic I went back and captured all of that and it became a cover story called in the spirit of crazy horse in 2012 um, and that kind of set the bar for the kind of stories that I I want to be telling. I mean, I don't know if we get very many of those in our lives, you know, that was, but I certainly aspire to that. That was like seven or eight years of work and it spun off into a project with Shepard Ferry and Ernesto Urena. Mm -hmm. So, Honor. so I, I really look up to you and, uh, and as an artist and a wannabe activist, I've never had the balls to really, really potentially put something out there that might piss some people off. So what yeah, I didn't I didn't really think of myself as an activist at the time. I but I think the TED Talk was my first step into like advocacy, like forceful advocacy and activism. I uh they didn't know really what I was going to talk about on that stage and then I I I wrote this timeline of of interaction from the white community from first contact to that Supreme Court case and used my photographs for that and it was it had a punchline. It like it it was it had a bent to it. It said at the end of the talk, you know, um, honor the treaties, give back, give back the Black Hills. It wasn't saying, well, here's the thing you could learn about. Why don't you go make up your own mind on this? It was no, it, a very forceful statement. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I was nervous to make that because I thought, well, is this going to make it so that publications won't want to work with me because I'm picking sides? But I don't think any of us ever really do these stories of major consequence without picking a side. Like, we can't be working on a story about the environment or about some great tragedy without understanding where we are with that and understanding what is right and what is wrong and, and what needs to be. And using that to drive you to, to finish the story because that's all there is. It, it, yeah. It's not like you're you're doing it for pay necessarily oh yeah and i wasn't getting paid by anybody right. for years and years i did the, that whole pine ridge story on on credit cards because the magazines were telling me the story's already been done there's nothing new about this like we're not gonna fund this like nat geo was really the first one to put the money in they just went all all in right like, but that was after you had made yeah after i <laughs> made it you know a couple dozen trips over and the course of the seven truth? years isn't that always how it, it has um, to be it's like you're you commit and then and then the value yeah. maybe maybe shows up but that's you can't hang on it so but i, I, I didn't i like again i wasn't trying to make a calculated i didn't think of it as like oh, i'm going to begin my activist work here it just was no i don't think it anyone was just, does it was just born out of like what i felt and what i knew and what i felt my responsibility was and uh and that just continued to birth new forms of that as, you know, something would shift and it'd be really clear the next part I needed to do. You know, and one of those shifts was uh, realizing that magazines and traditional photojournalism publications couldn't move the messages that people wanted out there because their job was not to be activist. And if I wanted to do that kind of more forceful work, I was going to need to leave publications, at least for part of that art, and take it to new audiences in new ways. And so... That was when the kind of the dream of the street art projects with artists like er Shepard Ferry and Ernesto came about. You know, I had this kind of crazy dream that what if I could get the greatest street artist in the world to turn some of these photographs that I'd been making into street art and pair it with the words of the activist community there. And, and we could take those to the streets in a way that people couldn't choose to subscribe or unsubscribe to their own beliefs. And we could go outside those publications. And we did. And we... we we made an art campaign um, with those messages that uh, that went all over the country through free downloads and street art in cities all over the country, and all of it pointed back to ed, you know educational resources and tools to learn about treaty rights. Uh, they all pointed back to an entire archive of every treaty ever made and broken, to the TED Talk, to resources to understand what organizations were doing work on indigenous land rights. 
Um, and so that started a whole other trajectory in my life that's always been running parallel next to my photojournalism where some projects just need that other vehicle that has a different set of rules. You know, when I do the work as a photojournalist, I adhere by those rules and I walk right down the middle path. Um, and I, I try that's how not you pay your bills. to, when I, when, no, and I just, no, it's just, it's my responsibility. I try not to like really to pick sides and, you know, I'm in the middle of oh, a story enough. about, as a photo, as a yeah, I'm in, sure. I'm in a story but about the objective. national monuments right now. And I'm, I have to respect the communities on both sides and hear all of their stories mm-hmm. like with fully with an open mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I take that really seriously as a journalist that I'm not in this National Geographic story about monuments, I'm not trying to be a monument activist. Like it would be wrong for me to do that. And I don't want to, in this hyper, in this hyper polarized uh, media environment we're in, that would, I would be perpetuating a thing that I think we have a really, really big problem with right now. Absolutely. So So that, that, that makes it really clear. But then there's some cases where you're absolutely calling. There's some cases where if I want to do that activism, I just don't take it into my photojournalism. I, I, I remove myself and my, the vehicle that is Amplifier.org, the nonprofit that was born out of all of that work with Shepard and Ernesto, um, then, then that, that vehicle can take up that cause and work with a different set of artists. It doesn't need to be my photography. At, at this point, it doesn't, I don't need to be involved as the artist. I'm the curator. So I, can you I talk about that? Artists. Yeah. About what exactly that does, why you started it, and, and what the purpose is? I mean, I started it because I, I felt like the confines of traditional magazine publications were going to mean that a lot of audiences didn't see it, and they didn't hear it in the way I wanted them to hear it. And so um, the purpose was, I mean, to stop people in the streets and wake them up and get them to, to learn about... Uh, some of these movements or moments or nonprofits. Using art. Yeah. So it was, you know, we, you know, what became an entire organization now, we, we build visuals for grassroots movements, you know, whether that's um, indigenous land rights or criminal justice reform uh, or, you know, gun, or gun violence. Like it's, uh, it's a way to stop people with a really simple, powerful message in the streets um, that speaks in a different way than photojournalism or written journalism can. So what is that like? You know, we th- when we think of Shepard Ferry, we think of, you know, underground, incredible street art that was not necessarily created legally. Do you have to work? In well, he creates it legally. It's just about who puts it up and where they put it up changes oh, the rules. Oh, so about different people put it up. Yeah. Okay. And is that how you're how it works now with what you guys are doing so other people can put it up yeah well i mean everything that we make uh every campaign we make one of the rules is it has to be uh available as a free download so infinitely shareable and movable i mean initially i have to admit like eight eight years ago seven years ago we did that partly for plausible deniability so that if we were wheat pasting all over the place and somebody's tried to stop us we could say well that or you know reported it we could say well that wasn't us like these are all free downloads that could be anybody sure um but right now like the way that it's moving millions of people are downloading the art that we're creating for uh events like the women's march and march for our lives and uh who did the art for a women's march well so People know the work we did around the Women's March by Shepard Ferry, but we actually didn't make that work for the Women's March. We made it for the day before for the inauguration protests. Uh-huh. Um, people just carried it to the Women's March. For the Women's March, we had a whole curatorial committee um, that had all female identifying artists. It was an open call. 6,000 people submitted work and was pared down to like half a dozen that were printed. We printed maybe 50,000 placards and moved them through the streets. Um, but people, what people really connected with was that Shepard Ferry work and Ernesto's work. Uh, that was made for the inauguration and they carried that to, in the streets to the women's march um, because it wouldn't have really been appropriate for me to hire shepherd ferry and work with him to make the work for the women's march you know, yeah it would have been more appropriate to have women working together on that so what was we, that like we made though? a purposeful separation it's just people melded they they meshed it all together organically what is that like like you said you started it but you had no idea how it, it we we knew that it had the potential to be pretty big. You mean that you're talking about the art of the that went around the world with the women's march, sure. the Shepherd Fry art. I mean, as an example, unless there's bigger ones that I might. That know was about. The, well, that was the biggest. I mean, we it it raised uh, you know a couple million dollars over the course of a month. Right, it was the highest. It was the most backed uh, art Kickstarter in history. There was like twenty three thousand backers, um, but we knew that there was the potential for it to be really big because just there was such a wave of despair and fear and people were kind of grasping for something to hold on to and and we made a symbol that people could 
kind of gather around and say this is our common value set you know that our yeah. really simple messages it was we the people are greater than fear we defend dignity we protect each other these are such simple value statements it's hard to believe we're back to like having to say those things but um, people were so angry and scared that I think it gave them a way to say it in a way that was beautiful and simple that they could hold it up and say this is this is what I believe. And then other people gathered around that and said, I believe that too. And it, it shows the power of art uh, and symbolism and unity. Yeah. It's incredible. And so, you know, we, one of the plans was to hand out like 50,000 placards in the street and to take out full page ads in the Washington Post, New York Times, and USA Today. And initially that was, we were doing that because we had heard that you weren't going to be allowed to take art to the inauguration route, or you weren't going to be able to take protest signs, but nobody can stop you from carrying a newspaper. So it was a hack of the inaugural uh, <laughs> route the day before the Women's March. And so people carried it in massive numbers um, to some of those places that you were not allowed to carry protest signs, but most people held it for the next day. And where we saw the most spread of it was not through the you know, millions of print ads, it was through the millions of downloads. Mm -hmm. So everything was a free download, so it meant that people all over the world could download and print it any size they wanted. People made dresses out of it, they projected on buildings at night, they made flags, um, they printed big and small, they printed on t-shirts, and through that is where we saw the most spread. On the morning of the Women's March, I remember waking up and somebody sent a picture of the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin surrounded by the art. And we had not sent art to Berlin. And it just meant that that was the beginning of it really moving. And then we started seeing it in every story, just about of every Women's March around the world. And we were surprised. We didn't really know that that was the work that would travel. Sure. But that's what the people chose to move. I want to get to Hawkeye. But sure. I'm curious, of all of the work that you've done, what are you most proud of? Because that Women's March might be the most, uh, it, like you said, it went the biggest. But I'm curious what to you has been your most proud I don't know. I mean, like the, the TED Talk on Pine Ridge and on the genocide of, of, of Native America is still being used by schools all over the country as curriculum, which mm -hmm. I'm really proud of, That's I think. Um, I think that has a really profound influence. I, I had one of our neighbors came over and didn't know that I had done that talk. And their fifth grader, I think, had it was their lesson in class. And this was a talk I did, you know, seven, eight, eight, eight years ago. And so to know that that is curriculum now and is a useful tool to help white communities understand what our history really created, like, I'm really proud of that. And then um, where, where have you seen the impact of, of your art actually well, make it. a I difference? Mean, that's the biggest well, difference. I, I think made, that it's, say? I mean, that, I can't really know how many, I mean, I get so many letters about that getting used. So I, I can't really know how many that, that is, but I think that may be the biggest impact is that, that that series of projects help to educate a community or a series of communities that didn't know about that problem. You know, white communities in America did not, couldn't wrap their head around the complexity of those timelines and that genocide. And I think that the simplification of that through that timeline and through the photography and through the storytelling with Shepard made a package that allows for I think it clearly K to 12 audiences to understand and changing adults. history he changed so thank goodness um and, it, and of course like the amplifier project around inauguration like knowing the you know that was potentially one of the most viral political art campaigns in history just because of the evolution of the internet and because mm -hmm. you know if that had happened maybe around Obama's hope image it would have been spread more but the internet was not being used in the same way we're using it now and so just because of how we use it that art moved more than any other political art in history um, so I'm <laughs> really proud of that because it was born out of my backyard and with a scrappy scrappy crew of me and a halftime employee and a couple of contractor friends and people that were passionate about it and advisors and with really without much resources yeah it's a really inspirational story if we had more time I would I would love to dig into the nuts and bolts of it but tell me about <laughs> about Hawkeye and how how you created maybe un without even knowing it the did you ever imagine what you would create in giving your kid a an analog camera? No, the Hawkeye Huey thing was a surprise because we weren't trying to make a, a photographer or a business out of any of that. Um, I just wanted to take Hawkeye on a great adventure away from home. And How old was he? Hawkeye was four, okay. and we were going to go to this kind of like 
hobo camp basically that's not a nice way to put it it's like a squatter village really like <laughs> i like i endearingly call it that because i i love the place um it's really special to me and it's a beautiful place uh, it's called slab city and it, it's right next to salvation mountain which is a place i'd been documenting and made a book about about the life of leonard knight and this man-made mountain he built there uh and i wanted to take my son there and just the original idea was to build blanket forts in the desert and just hang out <laughs> and just build something and do something kind of crazy but on the way, I kind of stopped and just thought, oh, we should we should get a, a camera. Maybe we could shoot some pictures, too. And I, I wanted a camera like the cameras of my youth. I didn't want him having digital screens. And I wanted something that could pop out and make a genuine interaction. And so uh, we stopped and bought like a Polaroid-style Fuji camera. And, uh, you know, when he shot his first photos with that at Salvation Mountain in Slab City, I... I posted one of the pictures to Nat Geo's Instagram stream because I had access to it because we were allowed to post a lot from our daily lives, anything that was related to our photographic journeys. And in the stream, people started immediately saying, well, we want to see what the pictures are. And I couldn't feed things into Nat Geo's stream or my own that were from a four-year-old. I just thought, that's I can't take up the space with that. So I just started an account that just said Hawkeye Huey. And by the end of the day, there were 15,000 followers on wow. it. And then it just started snowballing over time. Like Fuji found us and asked us if we would do projects and they could pay us to do things. And people started like paying us to travel together. And we started just turning all of our adventures into ones where we shot photos and shared them with people. And I, we've done a couple of stories for National Geographic's Traveler magazine that Hawkeye actually photographed himself and we <laughs> did it together. And one of those How comes old is out he now? Summer. Hawkeye's now eight and a half. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And we're not doing this all the time. It's because we're not trying to make a, a. We're not trying to make the trajectory of a, a career. We're not trying to make a photographer. No, it's just fun. But uh, so you know, he's a regular second grader. He's not a prodigy. You know, I think what makes it special is the time that we put in. It's not a very it's a normal for son. a for a parent to put you know 19 days in a row into a photographic project with a four or five year old. But we did that, and so because we did, it made something extra extraordinary. Mm. Um, it's not because it's like the young Beethoven. Um, it's just what happens if you put a lot of time into doing something really creative with an output with a with a child. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I know you have to go. I could ask you a thousand questions. <laughs> just one last thing. Looking back, what advice would you give to your younger self or at a time when you really needed it? I think I already took all my own advice. <laughs> I'm serious. I really, I can't think of anything I would do differently. No, uh, just advice, <laughs> like when you, you're struggling. Like, what would you have told that guy? Or maybe now. I don't know if I would have wanted to s stop any of the struggling. Just Alleviate. Like, I don't think I would have wanted any hints or even any encouragement <laughs> from a future self. Because encouragement from a future self would be a hint that things were going to be okay. It's like, sometimes it's not. Things I don't need to know it's going to be okay. I think sometimes the suffering is what creates um, the beauty and the work or the drive to continue to make those journeys. Like, I didn't necessarily need to or want to know that it was going to be okay. Mm. All right. Like, I don't think we can, that's not realistic. We can't know it's going to be okay. We don't know if we're going to live through today. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, All right. Thanks so much. You bet. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, friends. If you enjoyed the conversation, give us a review on iTunes and help spread the word. And remember, anyone who's been experiencing foot pain, especially in their ski boots, should really check out this company, Weave, W-I-I-V-V. It's the technology company that makes those custom footbeds that are affordable for your ski boots and your sandals straight from your iPhone, custom. Because the millimeter difference, it really does matter, especially on the mountain, and I would know. Get started today at weave, W-I-I-V-V.com or with their mobile app. Uh, again, W-I-I-V-V. Fans of the Showing Up podcast get that 20% off all orders. So use the code showing up and it's totally worth checking out. Other than that, I'll see you in the mountains, friends, because winter is here. <laughs>